Let's turn over to the book of Hebrews. For those of you that haven't been here, I've been trying to talk about what is God really like. And the reason this needs explanation is because Satan is a deceiver and he is, you know, we turned the very first scripture I turned to last night was Genesis chapter three. And he told Adam and Eve, the reason God doesn't want you to eat of the tree is because he doesn't love you. He's trying to hold something back from you. He doesn't want you to be like him. He began to malign and misrepresent the very nature and character of God. If Adam and Eve would have known how good God was, they would have never fallen for that deception. They wouldn't have ever eaten of this. And you know, in a sense, you can issue them a pass because they didn't have the same revelation that we've got. But today, God sent his son, Jesus, and he died for us and took our sins. And we should not be falling for this same stuff. And yet the average person today doesn't understand how much God loves them. They'll say that God loves them and in the same breath, they'll say he loved me so much he put this cancer on me. He caused my child to be born this way. He caused my business to fail. He made my marriage fail. I tell you what, uh, somehow or another, it's just been all twisted and perverted. If we really knew how much God loved us, we would just be rejoicing and living in a continual feast. But we, religion has hindered this. And so I've been countering a lot of things. And I was making this point that it's actually a lot of things in the Bible that Satan has used to give people a wrong impression about God because under the old covenant, God released his anger and released his wrath. And people take those portions of scripture and say that God is angry at you and that God is gonna judge you and punish you and even though those things happened in the old covenant, that is not the true nature of God. And last night I started showing that uh, for the first 2000 years, God didn't impute man's sins unto him. Then he gave the law and things changed the way that God dealt with people. But in Galatians chapter three, it says that that was only temporary until Jesus should come. And I used a bunch of scriptures this morning, a lot of scriptures to show that the Old Testament law is not for us and we should not be relating to God the way that the Old Testament people did. You know, I just said some things right there that are so off the page from what most people think that many of you, if you didn't hear this teaching, may reject some of the things that I've said. But please, I encourage you to get those tapes and listen to my explanation and turn over and read these scriptures before you reject it because I had scriptures to stand on for every one of those points that I made. Tonight, I want to show you some things in the book of Hebrews because again, this is stressing the same point. And the book of Hebrews is written to the Hebrews. It was written to Jews. And it was specifically written to Jewish Christians to get them out of the Old Testament law and have them start serving God under this New Testament relationship. And there's a lot of things in here. Probably the book of Hebrews isn't your favorite book in the Bible. Most people, it's confusing to them and that's because we don't understand grace. And this is written all about the grace of God. And so if you don't have a revelation of grace, Hebrews is a strange book to you. But if you do understand it, it is a masterpiece of explaining the grace of God. In the first chapter, he starts talking about how that God has spoken to us in these latter times by Jesus and Jesus supersedes every other revelation that God has ever given us. It says this in Hebrews 1, 3, talking about Jesus, who being the brightness of his glory 
and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. It says that Jesus here was the express image of his person. And if you take it in context, the point that he's making is that angels gave us some revelation of God. Uh, Moses gave us a partial revelation of God and there's been bits and pieces revealed, but Jesus is the perfect representation of God. He supersedes everything else. And so chapter two starts talking about, therefore, we have to take what Jesus revealed to us about God the Father above every other revelation that there was. Chapter three talks about he's the uh, apostle and high priest of our profession and that we have to give heed unto him. In chapter four, it talks about a thing called the Sabbath rest. This is one of the things that just excites me the most. I've taught on this a lot and I've got a teaching entitled Our Sabbath Rest. If Hebrews chapter four isn't one of your favorite chapters in the Bible, you need to get that teaching. This is awesome. And it shows you that in the New Testament, the Sabbath isn't a day, it's a relationship with the Lord. There are people who are observing a certain day and they are Sabbath breakers. They aren't resting in Jesus. They aren't resting in what the Father did. They are doing things by their own effort, trying to earn God's favor. And they are Sabbath breakers. The Sabbath has been fulfilled in Christ. And so in chapter five, he begins to start talking about how that there are many things that he wants to say, but they're hard to say because they're dull of hearing. Chapter six is a rebuke about wise up leave the baby things and go on into the word of God and figure these things out because we now have a new covenant. And so that brings us up to chapter seven. And in chapter seven, he starts into the main point, trying to show you that we are no longer under the Old Testament law. And one of the ways he does this is to show that Jesus isn't a priest through the tribe of Levi, which the Old Testament law said that any person who tried to offer sacrifices to God except the tribe of Levi and even more specifically the house of Aaron. You had to be a direct descendant of Aaron. If anybody tried to do that, God would judge them. And there's examples of Uzziah the king who tried to offer a sacrifice and God struck him with leprosy. So it was a well-established fact in the law that to be a priest, you had to be out of the tribe of Levi. And uh, Hebrews chapter seven says that Jesus came from Melchizedek out of the tribe of Judah, not out of the tribe of Levi. Now that's a big point because it means Jesus doesn't fit into the Old Testament law. And then he quotes from Psalms 110 verse four and David prophesied this, that Jesus would be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So it was prophesied in the Old Testament. The writers of Hebrew is saying Jesus came through the tribe of Judah, the priesthood of Melchizedek. And he makes this statement in Hebrews chapter seven. And in verse 12, it says, for, it, uh, for the priesthood being changed, there is made a necessity, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. So if Jesus isn't a Levite, which he wasn't. He came out of the tribe of Judah. He was a descendant of David. 
Well, then what right did he have to be a priest? Because he was the priest out of the order of Melchizedek. And the rest of this chapter, I'm not going to spend time going through it, but it shows you that Jesus, Melchizedek's priesthood, superseded Levi's priesthood. And it goes back to Genesis chapter 14 to prove that. So anyway, those are important things. But here's some of the points that I was wanting to get to in Hebrews chapter 7. And in verse 18, it says, For there is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. This word disannulling is a strong word. You know, if you annul something, like if you annul a marriage, that means that you go in and act like it never happened. You can go in and say that in the sight of the law, they were never married. Even though they may have gotten a marriage license or whatever, you can disannul the marriage and it legally never happened. And, or excuse me, that's to annul a marriage. To disannul it is even a strengthened form of saying that. The Greek word that's used here, I'm not going to try and pronounce it, but it's the word we get antithesis from. In other words, the antithesis means the exact opposite. When you say that is the antithesis of something, you are saying that is the exact opposite of what I was saying. This is saying that there is literally a a disannulment, a complete stopping of this thing, and it's in the opposite direction of what the Old Testament law was. Again, these verses make it very clear that the Old Testament law and the New Testament grace do not complement each other. They are contradictory to each other. Now, again, I hate to even say this because I'm trying to get on, but I know that there's some people here sitting here saying, so are you saying that the law is sin, that it wasn't good? We dealt with that this morning, but not everybody was here this morning. But no, that's not what I'm saying. There was a purpose of the law. It was to bring you to the end of yourself, to show you your sinfulness, to make you sin conscious, to stop your mouth, to make you guilty, to make sin come alive. It strengthened sin. It ministered death. It ministered condemnation. All of those are scriptures that we use this morning. There was a purpose of the law to shut you up from self-righteousness and self-salvation so that you had to depend upon God. If you use the law for that, it's okay. But when you try and administer the law, a performance mentality to people who have already made Jesus their Lord, it ceases to be a positive thing and it becomes a negative thing. All the law does is focus on you and your failures. It does not point you to a savior and to his grace and his forgiveness. It is counterproductive. It's in the opposite direction. It's the antithesis of grace. Grace and law are opposites. You cannot be following the grace of God and at the same time trying to live by the Old Testament law. They are in opposite directions. That's like trying to say you're walking east and west at the same time. You just can't do it. It is impossible. And I know the things I'm saying are just radical and some people think you can't mean this. I'm reading it to you right here. It says, for there is very a disannulling of the commandment going before for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. That is one strong passage of scripture. And, it, and from here on, it just starts adding on and talking about how that we've got to turn from the Old Testament law and start relating to God through the new covenant. So let me skip down to chapter eight. 
And in chapter 8, he kind of summarizes the first seven chapters of the book of Hebrews. He says in verse 1, Now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such a high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched and not man. And from here on, he makes some contrast between the temple or the tabernacle that was made by Moses and the true tabernacle that was in heaven. When Moses was on the mount, God showed him into heaven. And he's, there is a temple, a physical temple in heaven. And Moses saw it and patterned the tabernacle after that temple that's in heaven. And this is what it's referring to, that Moses established a tabernacle here on the earth that was symbolic of and reminded us of heaven, but heaven has a temple in it. And Jesus is now ministering in the true temple of God as a high priest for us. He's not just symbolic. Jesus is the real deal and he's doing it. And that's the point that he's beginning to make right here. And in verse three, it says, for every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices where it is, where, whereof it is of necessity that this man have somewhat also to offer. For if they were on the earth, he should not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law, who serve under the example and shadow of heavenly things as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle. For see, this is a quotation from uh, the book of Exodus. See, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mount. But now hath he, talking about Jesus, obtained a more excellent ministry by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant which was established upon better promises. We have something better than the Old Testament law. And yet it's amazing how Christians want to continue to remain under the bondage of the Old Testament. In verse seven, for if that first covenant talking about the law had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second for finding fault with them. He saith, and here's another Old Testament uh, quotation. This is from Jeremiah chapter 31, beginning with verse 31. So this was prophesied in the Old Testament. And here is the New Testament quotation of Jeremiah chapter 31. It says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the commandment that I made with the fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not. You know, I want to go on and read the rest of this. I hate to break into it, but let me explain this. The reason he's not making the same type of covenant that he made before because the first covenant was conditional upon their performance. They had to obey it. And it was conditional. If you will do this, then I will do this. And he says, that didn't work. Not because God's promise was wrong, but because we could not keep the law. We basically disannulled the law ourselves by our lack of performance. And so when he got ready to make the new covenant, the new covenant is totally different than the old covenant. It's not based on your performance. It's based on Jesus' performance. Jesus earned relationship with God the Father. And when you make Jesus your Lord, you become a joint heir with him, not based on performance, but based upon your acceptance of Jesus. 
And as long as Jesus remains faithful, you get all of the benefits. And I guarantee you, Jesus is going to remain faithful. So this is a new covenant based on a different uh, criteria. The only criteria is Jesus has to be worthy, not you. Man, that is a big, big difference right there. And so in verse 19, it says, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts and I will be to them a God and they shall be to me a people and they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying, know the Lord for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. You know, in the Old Testament, it was just a physical law that constrained your actions. Did you know you can take the law and minister it to a lost man and get them to obey to a degree? Because it's just a carnal, natural thing. You can preach the law. You can preach Malachi chapter three, verse eight to a lost man and say, are you gonna rob God? How would you rob God? In tithes and in offerings. You're cursed with the curse. God's gonna get you. Pay up or else. And instead of talking about God the Father, you basically are representing him as the Godfather. <laughs> Pay up or I'm going to break your knees. You're going to go into the hospital. And that's basically the way that God has been represented. But in the new covenant, it's God saying, every man give as you purpose in your heart, not grudgingly or of necessity. God wants to draw you by love and not by external things. And see, this is what this is talking about, that you don't have to have other people tell you what God's going to... God will establish a relationship with you personally and you will know in your heart what's right and wrong. A person who is truly born again has an intuitive leading of the Holy Spirit that shows you right from wrong. Now, you may not be doing very well because religion actually strengthens sin and makes sin come alive on the inside of you. But if you are truly born again, you're miserable when you go live in sin. It's not your heart. That's one of the ways you can tell that you've been born again. You may still do some of the same things that you did before you got born again, but before you were born again, you didn't really care. Now you do care and it bothers you that you're still doing that. That's because God has changed your heart and every one of us has a personal relationship with God, not just listening to somebody else tell us. You can hear from God directly. And then in verse uh, 12, it says, for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. Did you know that that is nearly too good to be true news? This is contrary to what religion is saying. You will not find religion preaching that God is merciful to your unrighteousness and your sins and iniquities he'll remember no more. Religion will preach that God is angry at you. God's ticked off. God is about ready to turn you into hell. He's not gonna answer your prayers. That's the reason you don't have joy and peace is God is holding sin against you, imputing it unto you. This says the new covenant that was prophesied in Jeremiah chapter 31 says, I will be merciful to your iniquities to your unrighteousness and your sins and iniquities I'll remember no more. 
You know, I was making television programs this last week. We had a woman come in. She used to be a Bible college student of ours and she only went to one year and she quit. And she came back and she wanted to sit in on a, on a lesson and I was teaching through the book of Romans. And after I got through, this woman came up and there was about, you know, there was our television crew. There's about five or six people in the studio. And this woman just started crying and she says, man, I needed this. This was God. And she started telling me that the reason she quit school was because she's pregnant and she's not married. And she says, I've been living in sin. And she says, I needed to know that God loved me. And you know what? Because of the grace, I, I put my arm around her and I said, God loves you. God's not mad at you. I said, it's wrong what you did and it hurt you. And you need to turn from this because it's not good for you. This is not a good environment to bring this child up in. I ministered the love to her and this woman just repented. And man, she is back on fire and seeking the Lord. It was the goodness of God that led her to repentance. But religion would have come out and said, you're a sinner. Look what you did. The wrath of God is on you. What she did was wrong. Now see, there's a balance here. Some people will take grace and say, well, that's not wrong. Don't tell them that that's sin. There is nothing wrong anymore. No, it's still wrong. But God loved her. He was merciful to her unrighteousness and her sins and iniquities he'll remember no more. When he found the woman taken in the very act of adultery in John chapter seven, he said, he that's without sin cast the first stone. And then he turned to the woman and he says, where are your accusers? She says, there aren't any Lord. By her saying that, you know, she was, she saw his love and compassion and she submitted her life and called him Lord. And he said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. He called it sin what she did. It was wrong. He didn't approve of what she did, but he was merciful to her unrighteousness and her sins and iniquities. He is remembering no more. Religion is holding people's sins against them, holding it over their head and using it to manipulate and tell them God won't bless you if you don't do this and this and this. That is not the new covenant. The new covenant, boy, you ought to write this on a card or something and stick it on your dashboard or on a mirror or someplace where you could remind yourself that I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. The old covenant held your sins against you. The new covenant, he's merciful and he doesn't remember your sins. You know, God has completely forgiven us, but the problem is most of us haven't forgiven us. Most of you still deal with yourself. We even say it things like, I'm just an old sinner saved by grace. You aren't an old sinner saved by grace. If you got saved, you were an old sinner, but you got saved by grace and now you are the righteousness of God and God sees you righteous and holy. Even though you still got problems in your life, God sees you in the spirit and in the spirit, you're a brand new person. And if you could ever see yourself in Christ instead of seeing yourself through the law, which focuses on all of your mistakes, then you would be so thrilled with who you've become in Christ that you would wind up reproducing that in your actions. You would live wholly as a byproduct, as a fruit of your salvation. But most of us see ourselves as sinners. We go around with this sin consciousness and because of it, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. 
We see ourselves as inadequate and filthy and defiled, and we wind up living that way because that's the way we see ourselves. Amen. Look in the next verse, verse 13. In that he saith a new covenant, this is referring all the way back to verse 8, where he started quoting from Jeremiah 31. So in verse 13, in that he saith a new covenant, he hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. Watch strong language. Man, this infuriated the Jews who it was all about the Ten Commandments and about the law and observing this rule and that rule. And if you didn't do it, man, they would stone you to death and they'd kill you. And here the writer of Hebrews is saying that there's a new covenant that's better promises. It's a better covenant. It was prophesied in the Old Testament and God will be merciful to your unrighteousness. Your sins and iniquities, he will remember no more. And the moment that he said it was a new covenant, he made the first covenant old. Now that old covenant is ready to vanish away. Man, that's strong. Those are strong, strong statements that the average person in the body of Christ does not understand. This is offensive to them. But the new covenant and the old covenant are incompatible. So in chapter nine, remember that men are the ones that put the chapter and verse divisions in here to help us reference things. Nothing wrong with that, but don't think that this is a brand new thought or a brand new teaching. It's the same thing. It's the same letter. And he goes on to say, then verily the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle made, the first wherein was the candlestick and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all. Again, for those of you that aren't familiar with this, I wish I had a diagram of this, but the, temp, the tabernacle that Moses made, there was a tent that was placed in the center of this area. And then there was a circle of curtains that went around the whole thing. The, the entire tabernacle uh, area was a large area. But in the middle of it was this tent. And this tent was divided into two parts called the holiest, the holy and the holiest or the holy of holies. And the holy of holies is where the Ark of the Covenant was and God dwelt in that part and nobody could go into that inner part except the high priest once a year with a sacrifice to, on the day of atonement. But uh, into that tabernacle, only priests could enter into there. On the outside, inside of these curtains was where they had the brazen altar. That's where they made the sacrifices of the animals and stuff like this. They sprinkled the blood and then they went into this tent and the first part of it, only priests could go into and that's where they had a candlestick that burnt constantly. They had showbread. They had a, a, a um, laver and they had an incense place that symbolized prayers. And the priest could go in there and minister all of the time, but they only went into the inner part, the Holy of Holies, once a year. And that's what he's referring to right here are these two parts. And then in verse four, it says, which had the golden censer. This is what's in that first part of this tabernacle. The Ark of the Covenant, oh, that's in the holy place. Um, overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that uh, had manna and Aaron's rod that budded and the tables of the covenant, the 10 commandments. 
And notice this in verse five, this is talking about in the holy of holies and over it, the cherubims of glory shadowing the mercy seat whereof we cannot now speak particularly. What does that mean? He's talking about all of these parts of the Old Testament tabernacle and he was showing you that there was a physical thing here on the earth that represented something that was reality in heaven. But when he got to the cherubs overshadowing the mercy seat, he said, we can't talk about them now. You know why not? Cherubims are not fat little babies with a bow and arrow the way that they're sometimes depicted. You can go back to Genesis chapter three and when Adam and Eve sinned, he drove them out of the garden and he placed cherubs with flaming swords at the east of the garden to protect it so that nobody would ever come in there and eat of the tree of life and live forever. Cherubims are warrior angels. You can read about them in Ezekiel chapter one and chapter 10. It gives you a description of cherubims and they are mighty powerful angels. And so these cherubims were over the mercy seat, not just as decoration or symbolism, but they, they literally symbolized that the way into the holy place was protected by God. And if anybody entered in through that veil into the holy place, except the high priest one time a year, he would be struck dead. And even the high priest, if he didn't cleanse himself appropriately, if he had any guile in his heart, he would be struck dead. And Josephus, a first century historian, wrote that they literally had a rope tied around the high priest's ankle that when he went in, the rope would still be outside because if he wasn't clean and God struck him dead, nobody could go get him. So they just would drag him out by this rope. Well, wouldn't that make you a little bit cautious to go in there with a rope tied around you in case God strikes you dead? But see, that's what these cherubims were there. They were to keep people from coming into the presence of God because they weren't worthy. They hadn't been cleansed. The Old Testament sacrifices never cleansed anybody. They were only symbolic of what was going to happen through Jesus. And so it wasn't real yet. And if a person didn't follow the symbolism to the last detail, God would strike them dead. But in the new covenant, the reason you can't talk about the cherubims is because you have been cleansed and now you have, according to Hebrews chapter four, verse 16, we have boldness to enter into the throne of God by the mercies of God in time of need. You do not have to fear some angel stopping you. If you were to enter into the presence of God and if an angel was to come against you and says, what makes you worthy? You could rebuke him in the name of Jesus because you have been cleansed. See, this doesn't apply anymore. The chair, and see, this is what happened when Jesus died. The veil of the temple that separated the holy place from the holy of holies was rent in two from the top to the bottom. Again, this first century historian, Josephus, he wrote about the veil that was in the temple and it was such thick material and it had golden thread woven through it with patterns on it that it was, it was basically indestructible and it was just one piece and the veil was rent in two from the top to the bottom. Josephus said teams of horses couldn't rip that curtain in two. And the fact that it was rent from the top, it was over 60 feet tall in Herod's temple. And for it to be rent in two, you know, this ceiling right here is probably 30 feet or something like this. 
that veil was twice as tall as this and to be rent from the top to the bottom, if somebody could rend it, they wouldn't have been able to get 60 feet up in the air. This shows that it was rent by God. When Jesus died, the separation between God and man was taken away. The angels were taken off of the mercy seat and we can now enter boldly into the very presence of God without any fear of rebuke. That's awesome. You know, if you saw this movie, the Bible recently that was on the history channel, Jamie and I watched that and I wasn't real thrilled with it. She finally made me promise I'd quit saying, that's not the way it happened. (laughs) But there were some good things in it. And one of the things I just thought about when that veil was written to and when there was an earthquake and when all of these things happened, how could those people in good conscience sew that curtain back together and go back through the motions knowing that it happened at the exact moment that Jesus died. Man, what an obvious, obvious revelation that the veil of the temple was written to. God is no longer separated. We have boldness to enter into his presence and they just had to be hypocritical to do it. Now we can, in a sense, give some people today a pass because we weren't there, we didn't see it. Maybe it hasn't become revelation to you, but I'm telling you in the New Testament, we're just as wrong as they were to go back to their religious patterns once that thing was was done. Jesus changed it. The Lord no longer is separated from us. Your sins are not separating you from God. I know some of you are thinking, heresy, Isaiah chapter 59, the Lord says, my arm is not short that it cannot save, nor my ear heavy that it cannot hear, but your sins have separated you from your God. And you know what? That's absolutely true. But once Jesus came, he broke that veil. He took away the separation. He's paid for it. And under the new covenant, your sins are not separating you from God eternally or keeping him from answering your prayers. God is not moving in your life based on your holiness. This ought to just make us rejoice. But you know what? Religion has taught us so much stuff that there's some people just like afraid to let go of this because man, if I, if I let go of this sin consciousness and this revelation of how ungodly I am, what's gonna keep me from living in sin? Love, love will cause you to live for God more than fear ever did. And yet there's some people that have been so conditioned to serve God only out of fear that they don't know how to serve God out of love. They think that if I was to just start thinking about how much God loved me and no longer afraid of his punishment or rejection, then I wouldn't serve God. There has to be one of two problems. One of them is either you aren't born again Because if you're born again, God changes your heart and you want to live for God. 1 John chapter 3 verse 3 says, Every man that has this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. If you're truly born again, you want to live for God. You may be doing a poor job of it because you don't know the truth. But if you are born again, you want to live for God. And once you understand the love of God, it doesn't set you free to sin, but it sets you free from sin. It'll draw you out of that life and you will start serving God out of love and mercy. 
not out of legalism and fear of being judged and punished. So either you just don't, you haven't been born again or you're under the law. The law makes sin come alive. We shared that out of Romans chapter seven. It makes sin have dominion over you. Romans chapter four, verse 15 and on and on and on we could go. So in the new covenant, the cherubims have been removed because the veil is now torn away and we have boldness to enter into the very presence of God without any rebuke. I just don't have the words to communicate how important that is. And most Christians are not living that way. Most Christians are coming in before God, kind of ducking and, and God, I'm sorry, please have mercy on me. And you aren't honoring what Jesus has done. You're bearing a sin consciousness thinking that God's going to get you. You still got the rope tied around your leg in case God strikes you dead. You need to get rid of that rope and get rid of this mindset because God is not mad at you anymore. He's merciful to your unrighteousness and your sins and iniquities he remembers no more. Man, that is awesome, awesome news. So let me go on and read a few more of these verses. In verse six, it says, now when these things were ordained, the priest went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. But into the second, that's talking about the Holy of Holies, went the high priest alone once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people. The Holy Ghost thus signified, the reason that this was significant, the reason that the priest could only go into the Holy of Holies once a year, it tells you right here, the Holy Ghost was this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while as the first tabernacle was yet standing. It was to show you that God had been uh, offended. We were separated from him. This veil symbolized this separation because of our sin. But in Christ, the veil has been rent in two and the separation is over and we need to get over this sin consciousness and this fear of rejection from God. We aren't allowing God to love us and to bless us because we still believe that there is a separation, that God is angry at us because of our sin. But the truth is our sins and iniquities, he will remember no more. In verse nine, it says this first tabernacle was a figure for the time then present, not the time now present, but the time then present in the Old Testament before Jesus came. It was a figure for the time then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience, which stood only in meats and drinks and divers washings and carnal ordinances imposed upon them until the time of reformation. If you understand this, every sentence, every verse is using some kind of a symbolism or a word that is talking about the time then present. Right there, it implies that that was for then, not for now. And it was imposed upon them and for a temporary time. And all of these wordings in here are to show you that it was only temporary. It was just for the time, uh, until the time of reformation. That's the time that we live in. Reformation means everything has been changed. 
We should be serving God differently today than they served God under the old covenant because we have so much of a better covenant. And so in verse um, 11, it says, but Christ being come a high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. That is to say, not of this building. In other words, it's talking about the temple that's in heaven, not something that was made with the hands of man. In verse 12, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. And this is one of the huge, huge differences between the old covenant law and the new covenant grace. In the old covenant, every time a person sinned, they had to offer a sacrifice to atone for that sin. You couldn't go by last year's atonement. If you sinned, you had to offer a new sacrifice to cover your sin. Every time there was a new moon, you had to offer a sacrifice. Every time you had a child, you had to offer a sacrifice. And then once a year, the high priest went in and had a day of atonement to cover all of the sins that people weren't even aware of and that they had failed to deal with. There was just constant flowing of blood. When Solomon dedicated the temple, I forget how many, but it was, I think it was 30,000 animals that he sacrificed. Tens of thousands of animals. There was just constant flowing of blood. And in the old covenant, every time a person sinned, you had to go back and get that sin under the blood and get it forgiven. You know why? Because the sacrifices in the Old Testament never forgave a thing. They were only symbolic. They were types and shadows, but they didn't do anything. They were just symbolism. And we had to keep the symbolism in front of us constantly to remind us that the wages of sin is death. And by the grace of God, instead of killing you, he allowed you to kill an animal. But every time you slit the throat of a lamb, you had to remember that should have been me that's dying. God has allowed a substitute to die in my place. But it was a constant reminder that you needed a savior. You needed somebody else to pay for your sins. And so that symbolism was reinforced over and over and over. But in the New Testament, again, verse 12, he entered in not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once, once and obtained eternal redemption for us. Eternal. Eternal means eternal. It means forever. It means that you don't have to have another sacrifice for your sin. And yet the body of Christ today, every time you sin, you have to go get that sin confessed and under the blood or God won't bless you. There's, there's two extremes of this. The ultra Pentecostals believe that every time you sin, you lose your salvation. And if you were to die before you get that sin under the blood and confessed, you would die and go to hell, even though you might've been saved for 30, 40, 50 years and have done, you know, been seeking and walking with God, but you sin and don't have a, you have an unconfessed sin in your life and you would die and go to hell. The same thing, just with a lesser consequence is the more traditional denominational approach where you don't lose your salvation, but God won't heal you. 
He won't answer your prayers. You can't have joy. He won't bless you if you have any unconfessed sin in your life. It's the exact same principle, just with a lesser consequence. This is saying he entered in once and obtained eternal redemption. That means that God forgave all of your sins, past, present, and even sins that you haven't committed yet have already been forgiven. And you know, I know that there are many of you that were raised just like I was and you are just in your heart going heresy. It's all you can do to stay in here. How can God forgive a sin before you commit it? You better pray he can forgive a sin before you commit it because he only died for your sins one time 2,000 years ago. If he can't forgive sins before you commit them, you can't be forgiven. I don't know how he does it, but God can forgive sins before you commit them. And the truth is that Jesus paid for all of your sins, past, present, and even the sins you haven't committed yet have already been put under the blood. They are already dealt with. You do not have to go to the Lord and get your sin under the blood. And if you were to die with an unconfessed sin, you don't go to hell. If I thought that you did, then the moment you got born again, I'd just kill you. (laughs) I might go to hell, but that's the only way you'd ever make it to heaven is for somebody just to kill you right then. Did you know some of the ways that some of you are thinking about me right now is sin? (laughs) Man, you better pray you don't have a car wreck on the way home because you wouldn't go to heaven. Whether you like it or not, I am your brother and I am going to heaven and I'll probably be in the mansion next door to you, amen. This is impossible to live under this thing that you've got to have every sin confessed or you'll go to hell or God won't answer your prayers. You can't live that way and that's the exact reason that most Christians today are totally powerless because they know that God exists. They know that he has power, but they just don't feel like they've done everything right. Their own conscience condemns them. And the truth is you haven't done everything right, but you've misunderstood that God is merciful to your unrighteousness, your sins and iniquities he'll remember no more. And he entered in once into the tabernacle and has paid for your sins, past, present, and future Your sins are not going to be a new affront against Jesus. Just look at it from a logistical standpoint. There are millions, maybe billions of Christians on the planet. And they're all confessing multiple sins every day. And oh, Jesus, forgive me of this. Oh, God, I overate again. Oh God, I did this again. Oh God, I lusted again. And they're asking for forgiveness multiple times. If you have millions and millions of people confessing thousands of sins individually every day and stuff, it would be impossible for Jesus to be constantly reapplying the blood to all of that. Plus the Bible says, Hebrews chapter 10, I'm gonna get to this, probably not tonight, but I'm gonna get to this. And he is seated at the Father's right hand. He's not working Jesus is not there constantly reapplying the blood and getting all of your sins reconfessed and under the blood. He's seated. When he hung on the cross, he said, it is finished. He dealt with your sins. He paid for the sins of the whole world. 
And Jesus is finished making an atonement for your sins. If you need to be saved tonight, you don't need to ask him, Lord, will you forgive my sins? I ask you to forgive my sins. That's wrong. Now, praise God that God is merciful and he can translate our unbelief into faith. But you don't have to ask God to forgive you. The Bible says he already has forgiven you. It's done. When a person gets saved, they don't say, will you forgive me? I ask you to come into my heart. In Acts chapter 16, the Philippian jailers said, sirs, talking to Paul and Silas, what must I do to be saved? And they didn't say, well, repent and ask Jesus if he would come and forgive you of your sins and come into your heart. That's not what he said. They said, believe on the Lord Jesus. Believe what? Believe that he's the savior, that he paid for your sins. Believe that it's done and receive. You believe and receive, but you don't ask God to do it. You believe that he's done it. True Christianity isn't trying to get God to do something. It's finding out what he has already done and just reaching out and receiving it as a free gift. It's a done deal. Jesus has already paid for our sins. He entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption, not redemption until the next time you sin. And then you got to get re-redeemed. You got to be born again, again. You got to be re-forgiven. No, he obtained eternal redemption. What part of eternal do you not understand? Eternal redemption. And then in verse 13, for if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctified to the purifying of the flesh, that was the old covenant law, how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Brothers and sisters, very few Christians have had their conscience purged from dead works. Most Christians live with a conscience constantly defiled and condemned about their dead works, their wrong actions. Man, I wish I could talk fast enough. There's no way I'm going to make it. But over in Hebrews chapter 2, last phrase, it says, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 2, it says that you should have no more conscience of sin. You should not be sin conscious. That's even off the radar. Most Christians feel like that's not even a positive thing. Being sin conscious is very good. It keeps me humble. Scripture says you should have no more conscience of sins. You should have your conscience purged from dead works. The next verse, verse 15. And for this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament that by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Again, there's a large segment of the body of Christ that believe you only have inheritance and as long as you behave. And if you mess up, you lose your inheritance. Either eternally, you go to hell, or in the present, you don't get your prayers answered. God won't heal you. God won't bless you. God won't move. You lose your inheritance. This says you get eternal inheritance. 
because of what Jesus did. And there are five times in just a few verses right here where it emphasizes that Jesus entered in once and paid for all of your sins, past, present, and future. It's already done. You know, just for time's sake, I'm trying to at least get through this ninth chapter. It says in verse um, 24, For Christ is not entered into the holy place made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with the blood of others. For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. If Jesus had to pay for every individual sin that you committed, Jesus would have had to have died hundreds of millions of times over. He died one time for the sins of all men for all times. When you accept Jesus, you accepted forgiveness for all of your sins, past, present, and future sins. They're wiped out. In verse 26, for then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed unto man once to die, but after this the judgment, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation." If you read this in its context, he's saying that the Old Testament law had certain things that were absolutely essentials. One of them is that you had to be a priest of the order of Levi. Jesus broke that by becoming a priest after the order of Melchizedek from the tribe of Judah. And since the priesthood is changed, the law has to be changed. Then he goes into an Old Testament prophecy, Jeremiah 31, and shows you how it was prophesied that there is a coming, a new covenant made upon better promises. And in this covenant, God would be merciful to your sins and iniquities. He would remember them no more. Then he shows you in the tabernacle that the veil was rent in two. The cherubs are gone. We now have complete access to God Jesus offered himself as a living sacrifice. He is the lamb of God and Jesus paid for every sin that you have ever or will ever commit. One time he paid for all of your sins. Sin has been destroyed. Sin is not the issue with God anymore. God is not upset with you over your sin. And again, I know that there's people just saying, you can't say that. You're encouraging people to sin. You're giving them a license to sin. I'm telling you, people are sinning without a license. I'm not giving anybody a license to sin. If you understood what I said properly, you would be so thankful that Jesus loved you so much that he paid for all of your sins and didn't make it conditional on you doing everything. He knew you couldn't keep the conditions. So he just forgave you. And if you understood that, you would be so thankful you would serve God more accidentally than you ever have on purpose before. And again, I want to say praise God that he gave me the opportunity to preach this gospel. Thank God that he gave me the revelation. 
And one of the criticisms against people who preach grace is they'll sit there and say, you're just justifying sin. Well, you know what? I just turned 64. I think I mentioned this to you last night and I haven't said a word of profanity in all my 64 years. I hadn't used uh, liquor. I hadn't smoked a cigarette. I've lived holy, holy, holy. You cannot accuse me of using grace to justify an immoral life. I'm living holier than most of you ever thought of living. Not because I'm doing it out of fear. Grace, Titus chapter two, verse 12, the grace of God teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust and to live soberly and righteously in this present world. The grace of God is making me serve him out of love, not out of fear of punishment and rejection. Grace doesn't make people go live in sin. When I bring my wife flowers, when I do something nice, when I tell her I love her and things, that doesn't make her want to go do something to hurt me and go commit adultery. Man, the more you love a person, the more it makes that person want to love you back and accept that love. And yet religion has taught us that if you tell people that God loves them and he's not angry at them, they're going to go live in sin. That's not how it works with your wife. That's not how it works with your children when you tell them how good they are and you tell them that you're proud of them and stuff like that. That makes them draw closer to you. And yet we've somehow or another thought that we have to drive people to God out of fear instead of draw them by love. I'm telling you, we got a new covenant. And it says in Romans chapter one, verse 16, that it is the gospel, this preaching about the goodness of God, that is the power of God to salvation. The gospel will draw people to God. The gospel will change people's lives. The reason that our society has not had a greater impact by the church is because we aren't preaching the gospel. We're preaching law. We're preaching legalism. And it causes people to be upset and feel condemnation and guilt. That's the purpose of the law is to make you guilty. But it doesn't reveal Jesus to people. We need to be preaching the goodness and the mercy of God. You've been forgiven of all of your sins. You know, let me, I'm going to have to quit sooner or later here. Let me turn over here though to John chapter 16 and share this with you. This is Jesus speaking the night before his crucifixion. And in John chapter 16 and in verse Uh, he'd been telling them how he was going to be crucified and how he would be leaving them. And he said in John chapter 16, verse six, because I've said these things unto you, sorrow hath filled your heart. They were upset thinking that Jesus was going to leave them. They didn't understand what he was talking about. And then he said this in verse seven, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you. That means it's to your advantage. It's more advantageous. It's better for you that I depart and go away. For if I go not away, the comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. Boy, you could, I could preach on this for a long period of time. But most of us, if Jesus could somehow or another physically manifest in his body and walk into this room, most of us would rather have that than having the Holy Spirit with us the way he is. Most of us would rather see Jesus in his physical body than to have the Holy Spirit. But Jesus said, it's actually better for you to have the Holy Spirit with you than it is to have me in my physical earth suit. 
present with you. Man, that puts a value on the Holy Spirit that's with us tonight that very few people acknowledge. We aren't drawing on what we've got, but what we've got is better than having Jesus in his physical body present with us. The potential is greater with the Holy Spirit than it is if Jesus was here in his physical body. That is nearly too hard to believe. And then he talked about what the Holy Spirit would do in verse eight. And when he has come, the Holy Spirit, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. You know, I've heard people deal with this in numbers of different ways. And there are multiple, you know, scriptures can be applied sometimes in multiple ways. But I've heard people say that this is talking about he will convict the world, talking about the non-saved of these things. But I believe that the world here is just talking about anybody. The, and here's what the Holy Spirit will do. It says, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And then in verse nine, he says of sin. He knew that people were gonna take this and apply it in a way that religion instructed them to do. So he just went ahead and explained it so that nobody would misapply this. The sin that the Holy Spirit convicts of is not believing on Jesus. It is not the sin of adultery, lying, stealing, not paying your tithes, this, this, and this. The sin that the Holy Spirit convicts of is the sin of not believing on Jesus because all of the rest of the sins have been paid for. First John chapter two, verse two says that he is the propitiation for our sins. The word propitiation means atoning sacrifice. He's the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also the sins of the whole world. Jesus has paid for the sins of the whole world. Sin has been dealt with. Sin has been destroyed, past, present, and future. Sin is not the issue. It's a matter of are you accepting Jesus or not? That's the only sin that will send a person to hell. Your sin of lying, adultery, homosexuality, or whatever does not send a person to hell. It will open up a door to the devil and it will allow the devil to come in and make your life miserable but Jesus paid for the sins of the whole world. The only sin that isn't covered is the sin of rejecting that payment. And this is what the Holy Spirit is dealing with people about. Have you made Jesus your Lord? Have you accepted him? That's different than what the church is doing, basically. The church is saying, you're a sinner. You're going to hell. But the truth is Jesus paid for your sins. What we should be doing is saying, yeah, you were a sinner and you sinned, but did you know the good news that Jesus has already paid for your sins? And they say, well, man, that's great. You mean I can just go live in sin? No, your sins have been paid for, but now you have to accept that payment. Have you made Jesus your Lord? Have you submitted your life to him? Have you committed your life? And that's what the message should be that you need to receive this good news. The veil of the temple is rent in twain and you can now approach right into the presence of God through Jesus. But there's no other name given among men whereby you must be saved. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Everything goes through Jesus. You have to have Jesus. 
Just because Jesus paid for the sins of the whole world, every person has to come to grips with Jesus. Have you made Jesus your personal Lord? And if you haven't, even though he paid for your sins, you will go to hell because you refused the payment. That's a terrible thing. And when you understand this, it makes it even more tragic that people are dying and going to hell because Jesus paid for their sins. Everything that was necessary for their salvation has already been accomplished. I meet people all of the time who just can't believe that God can forgive them. And they don't understand that he already has forgiven them. It's already a done deal. It's not, Jesus, will you forgive my sins? He's already done it. Are you going to believe and just make him your Lord? Will you believe on the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved in your house? Or are you going to just continue to beg and wonder, will God do it? God's already done it. God's already forgiven your sins. Many of you are living under a sin consciousness that God doesn't even know what you're talking about. It says in Psalms 103 that he'll forgive our sins and remove them as far as the east is from the west. Jeremiah 31 and also Hebrews chapter 8. You're a, he'll be merciful to your unrighteousness and your sins and iniquities he will remember no more. Some of you are limping through life with shame and guilt and dragging this ball and chain through life and just, you feel like you, it's your duty. You did so bad. You've got to do penance the rest of your life. And I'm saying this in love. I'm not trying to offend you, but you are, it's just like you're slapping Jesus in the face. Jesus, you didn't do enough. I've got to suffer for what I did. You know, I met a man in Dallas who came up to me after I was preaching a message like this. And he came up to me. He was a Spanish guy and grew up in Mexico. And in Mexico, the Catholic church is different than here. I'm not here to, you know, condemn anybody or extol one group over another. But I'm saying in, some of you don't have this reference point, but in uh, Mexico, it's different. It's a different religious system. And they actually, in Mexico, on uh, Lent season, they do the same thing here in a lesser degree. But you'll find many of the liturgical churches, they will go through fasting and they will have to deny themselves and do without certain types of food. You know what the point of that is? To do penance for your sins. And in the Catholic Church in South America, they actually crucify people. They put them on crosses and they crucify them. And some of them die. Others they'll take down right before they die. This man that came up to me rolled up his sleeves and showed me his arms that were just scarred up and pulled his pants leg up and his knees were scarred, terrible looking scars. And when he was in the Catholic church, he crawled three miles over broken pieces of glass to do penance for his sin and is scarred to this day because of that. You know what they're doing? They are doing penance for their sins. And we think, well, you don't have to do that. I agree. Nor do you have to sit there and bear about a sin consciousness and feel unworthy and feel like God couldn't use you because of the things you've done. In a sense, you're doing the same thing that these other people are doing, feeling like you have to pay for your sins. When the truth is, Jesus has already paid for them and he doesn't even remember them. Jesus isn't even aware of it. You're going and you're saying, oh God, I failed you so bad 20 years ago. I know you could never use me and he doesn't even remember it. You are punishing yourself. You are letting Satan do this. And the reason you're doing that, the law makes you focus on sin. 
It gives you the knowledge of sin. It focuses you and makes you guilty. And the church is the one that's preaching the majority of sin consciousness and law mentality. We are free from the law. God has redeemed us. He has forgiven all of your sins, past, present, and future. And if anybody takes what I've said here tonight and says, man, I love this. I can go live in sin. You ought to get born again. You aren't saved. When you get saved, God changes your want to. If you're truly born again, you want to live for God. You just have condemned and you don't know how to do it. But this sets... The love of God will set you free from sin, not free to sin. It'll change your life. And I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, if we could ever understand this, I I know that not everybody's going to be able to come back tomorrow, but I pray that you could come back tomorrow or get the CDs and DVDs. Don't ask for it tonight because they aren't made yet. We'll have people do that every single time and says, I'm not going to be able to be here tomorrow. Could you go ahead and give me tomorrow's teaching? No, we can't because it hadn't been done yet. But you could sign up and we'll send it to you. You need to get the teaching I'm going to do tomorrow because I'm going to talk about the price that Jesus paid for your freedom and liberty from the Old Testament law. And again, most of us don't have a clear understanding of this. We're so focused on our sin that we aren't focused on the price that was paid for our sin. And the price that was paid was so great, it overwhelmed our sin. If you could imagine a tsunami overcoming a little seedling plant, that's the same type of thing. God's provision that he gave through Jesus paid for your sins a million times over. There is nothing that you owe. Jesus paid it all. God's not ticked off at you. He's not in a bad mood. God loves you. God is passionate. And you say, but I don't deserve it. You don't, but Jesus does. And Jesus has given you all of the acceptance and the love that he earned and that God has given him. He's directed it towards you. And the truth is God loves you just as much as he loves Jesus. Because when you made Jesus your Lord, you became a new person And God sent the spirit of Jesus into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And when God looks at you, he sees Jesus. You're a new creature. You are looking on the outside and you're seeing all of your faults and failures. God is looking at you in the spirit. And in the spirit, you are identical to Jesus. He's pleased with you. He loves you. He's not upset with you. And if you ever got this revelation and dwelt in what Jesus has done for you, it would free you from sin. And you would start living holy because you understand how much God loves you. It would break these bondages in your life, whereas focusing on all of your problems just amplifies them. Man, that's awesome. This is nearly too good to be true news. That's the gospel. And this is what will set people free. I'm telling you, God loves you tonight more than any of us know. I've been meditating on this for 45 years and I still feel like, man, God, there's just so much more. None of us have a full revelation of how much God loves us. But God loves you more than you realize in spite of who you are. 
because of Jesus. Jesus has forgiven you. Just like that woman taken in the very act of adultery, Jesus didn't condemn her. He didn't condone what she did. He said it was sin. Don't go do it anymore. But he showed mercy and love towards that woman. And because of that, I'm convinced that woman started living for God. She made him Lord. If you could understand what I'm trying to get across tonight, it would cause you to live for God more than you've ever lived for God before. Amen. And yet we're afraid to do this. We're afraid to let go of our manipulation and control and we can exercise. Condemnation can make people walk straight. It'll make you look good on the outside, but on the inside, you'll still be miserable. And God looks at man on the heart. Man look on the outside. Religion doesn't care. Just as long as you put your hair up a certain way and make your dress the right length. And as long as you say glory to God duh, and come to church and pay your tithes, they don't care what's going on in your heart. God's looking at your heart. And God wants your heart. And if he ever gets your heart, he'll get all of your dress and everything else straightened out. Amen. We need to let God deal with people. That's awesome. Father, I just pray that the Holy Spirit helps all of us to understand this great new covenant that you gave us. Help us to understand our deliverance and freedom from the law. Help us to understand, Father, that you love us and you paid for all of our sins, past, present, and future, that there's no cherub standing in the way between us, that you've wiped out the barrier that was between us and that we can come boldly unto the Father, unto the throne of grace to obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Father, thank you. And I just pray that the Holy Spirit shows this, reveals it to our hearts here tonight, that we would receive this new covenant, that we would come out from under the death and condemnation of the old covenant. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for revealing that to us. And we welcome this ministry here tonight. Thank you, Jesus. You know, I'm going to give an invitation for people to receive salvation, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But right now, I know in my heart that God is speaking. There are many, many people right here that you have cried out for forgiveness a hundred times. You've tried to atone for what you've done by doing good to overcome the bad. You've done a lot of different things, but you've never forgiven yourself. You just live with a sense of shame. In a sense, I believe most people do that, but there are some people in here that this is paralyzing you. You just live with guilt and condemnation and the Holy Spirit's been speaking to you tonight. And if you would be honest, you'd say, man, I am sin conscious. I am living under this old covenant. I haven't entered into this new thing. This thought that God would be merciful to my unrighteousness and my sins and iniquities he would remember no more. There's some of you that that's a brand new wrinkle in your brain. You've never thought that before. And tonight you need to receive this. As I was praying, the Lord just stopped me and said, people need to receive this right now. So you know what I want to ask if that's you. And again, everybody could do this to a degree, but I'm talking to those that this is a total revelation And you know that tonight this was a word for you to help you get set free from this guilt that you've been carrying for a long, long time. 
If that's you, I just want you to stand right where you are. Humble yourself. And I'm going to pray for you. And I believe God's going to forgive you. I know that there's some of you thinking, well, why? I don't want to stand. I don't want to admit to people I've been living under this guilt and condemnation. But I'm asking you to stand publicly. I'm wanting you to do this before God. You need to humble yourself and just receive this deliverance. Anybody else? I know that there's some people thinking, I don't want to stand. I'm just going to sit here, but I'm going to receive this prayer. I'm going to specifically pray this won't work if you're seated. You're going to have to stand to get in on this prayer. You can't bootleg this prayer. You got to stand to receive it. Anybody else? Thank you, Jesus. Praise God. Father, I thank you for these people. And I believe that tonight, Father, you are breaking this sin consciousness. Father, I ask the Holy Spirit to just do a miracle and to remove this guilt and condemnation. Thank you, Jesus. The Lord is showing me that some of you are just as mean as a snake. And it's because you feel so guilty and so condemned. You won't let God love you because you feel you've blown and you can't give away what you don't have. If you right now would humble yourself and say, Father, I'm sorry that I haven't appreciated what Jesus has done. I thought my sin was bigger than what Jesus has done. Tonight, I received the new covenant. And you, if you will open up your heart and let the love of God flow towards you, you are going to be so full of love that instead of being angry and mean as a snake, you are going to be totally changed around to where the love of God flows out of you. But you can't give something you haven't received. There's some of you standing right now that it's just been hard for you to love other people. You cannot keep a relationship and it's because you can't receive from God yourself. Open up your heart and let God love you. And once you receive this love, then you will be able to turn around and love others. Father, I speak these things over these people and I thank you for taking away this anger and bitterness and rage on the inside of people. Father, I thank you for taking away their shame and their guilt. We break the depression, the multiple personalities, all of these kind of things that this stuff has led to. We break these things now in the name of Jesus. And Father, I thank you that this guilt is no longer holding people in bondage. Thank you that we are delivered from this. Thank you that you've paid for all of our sin, all of our unrighteousness. Thank you that we are now cleansed by the blood of the Lord Jesus of all sin, past, present, and future. And Father, I believe that guilt and condemnation is broken over people tonight and that they aren't going to live there anymore that they're moving. They're getting out of that shame. We receive this. And Holy Spirit, I just trust that you are doing a miracle. These people have humbled themselves. And you said, if we humble ourselves, that you will lift us up. I believe you are lifting us up above this shame and guilt and condemnation. 
and that we are walking in victory. And I thank you for doing that tonight in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. You can be seated. You know, tonight, if you don't know Jesus, I've preached the gospel to you. Jesus has already paid for your sins. It's not a matter of will he forgive you. He's already forgiven you. Now, will you accept it? It doesn't work. It doesn't change you. It doesn't change your destination as far as heaven or hell until you accept what Jesus has done. And the Bible says in Romans 10, 9, that if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. He's already paid it all. It's not a matter of will he do it. It's will you accept it by making him Lord. When you make him Lord, that doesn't mean that you're promising you'll never do anything wrong because you can't keep that. You will fail. But you are willing to make him Lord. You want him to be in control. He'll be merciful to your unrighteousness, your sins and iniquities he'll remember no more, but you have to be willing to bow the knee and turn your life over to him. If you've never done that, you need to do that. That's what salvation is. And if you've already been born again, then you need the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I said this last night, but I'm going to say it again, that without the Holy Spirit, you can't understand the things I'm talking about. This is not the way that people think. This is not how people get along with people. Everything in this world is based on performance. But with God, it's all based on receiving what Jesus did. It's based on His performance and not your performance. You cannot understand this and retain it without the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The Bible says in John 14, 26, but when He, the Holy Spirit has come, He will teach you all things and lead you into all truth and bring to your remembrance all things whatsoever I've spoken unto you. The Holy Spirit has to reveal these things to you. You need the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which includes speaking in tongues. That's not all that there is to it, but that's part of it. And I tell you, if you don't speak in tongues, you need it. And some of you thought, well, man, I didn't know you were one of those. I don't spit and scream and I'm not your typical Pentecostal with a handkerchief wiping my sweaty brow and stuff. And so some of you didn't know what you were getting into by coming here. You just see me sitting down and talking like a normal person and you didn't know what you were getting into. But I'm telling you, I am baptized in the Holy Ghost. I pray in tongues. I've prayed in tongues today. I've prayed in tongues in this room tonight. I'm a tongue talker. And I'm telling you that I wouldn't have had the power of God. I wouldn't have understood these things if the Holy Spirit wasn't in my life. You need the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You need it. It's not optional. You can go to heaven without it, but why would you want to? If you're going to have victory in this life, you need the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So is there anybody here who would say, I need to make Jesus my Lord, or if you've already done that, I need to make, I need to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit and this gift of speaking in tongues. I want that. If that's you, I want you to raise your hand so that I can pray for you tonight. Anybody in here? Yep, here's people back here number of people. Praise God. Anybody else? Thank you, Jesus. 
We've already had, I think, nine or ten people that have received salvation in about 80-something, 85 that have received the baptism of the Holy Spirit and spoken in tongues. But you know, if you raised your hand tonight or if you were supposed to raise your hand and didn't do it, would you just come right down here and let us pray with you? We want to help you to receive. So just get up out of your seat. Come forward right now and let us pray with you and help you to receive. Thank you, Jesus. Praise God. Thanks for coming, brother. Awesome, brother. This will set you free from depression. I can guarantee you. God bless you. You know, we've already had a lot of people receive, but man, I just... I hate to let any service go without giving an invitation for this because everybody needs to be born again and everybody needs the baptism of the Holy Spirit and this gift of speaking in tongues. There's no question about it. That's not just for a few people. It's for every person. Anybody else in here want to come and receive? Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. tell you, this is going to change your life. This will make an awesome, awesome difference in your life. I really believe that. You know, outside of being born again, the most important thing is to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It just is a life-changing experience. Zechariah chapter 4 verse 6 says, Not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, saith the Lord. And that's the way that we've got to live. The Christian life isn't just difficult. It's impossible to live on your own. You need the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. And Jesus told his disciples, you would receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And man, that is exactly what happens. So before I can pray with you to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit in this gift of speaking in tongues, you have to be born again. The Bible says Jesus is the one who gives this baptism of the Holy Spirit and of fire. So you have to receive Jesus before you receive his gift. Is there anybody down here who's not absolutely certain about whether or not you've made Jesus your Lord? You may believe that he exists. You may acknowledge, you may be trying to live a good life and assuming that because you're a relatively good person, that God just accepts you, but that's not true. It all comes down to, have you believed on Jesus? Have you made him your personal Lord? If there's anybody down here who hasn't done that, I need to lead you in prayer first to make Jesus your personal Lord. Is there anybody who would just raise your hand and say, I want to make Jesus my Lord. I need to make sure that I'm born again. I need to pray with you if you haven't done that. Is there anybody who hasn't done that and you want to pray this prayer first? Did you raise your hand or not? <laughs> You've already done it. Okay, anybody else? Here's one down here. Anybody else? Praise the Lord. Awesome. You know, I'm not trying to talk anybody out of your salvation, but you just got to be sure. And there's so many people who aren't sure. You don't need to guess about this. If you aren't sure, you need to raise your hand. There's one lady down here I'm going to pray with. Anybody else? Anybody else? 
Well, awesome. All right, we're going to pray with you. Oh, here's this brother too. Praise God. Here's two more down here. All right, I'm going to lead you in a prayer. And I'm going to pray a prayer similar to what you need to say. It's based on the Bible. It's not these exact words, but you have to say something similar. And if you will just repeat this after me and mean it in your heart, then you'll be born again. Isn't that a good deal? Jesus has already paid for your salvation. All you got to do is receive it. So I'd like to ask everybody in here to pray this with me so that they won't feel like we're just listening to them. Say this out loud. Say, Father, I'm sorry for my sin. I believe Jesus died to forgive my sin. And I receive that forgiveness. Jesus, I make you my Lord. I believe that you now live in me. I am saved. I am forgiven right now in the name of Jesus. Amen. You believe that? Awesome. You've just been changed on the inside. That's awesome. You know, this man is still a man. This woman is still a woman. But on the inside, you're totally different. You're totally different. And according to the Bible, every person now down here that has done that, the Bible says you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. That means that God created you to be a dwelling place for the Holy Spirit. So you don't have to beg and plead and, oh God, please come fill me. He's wanting to fill you more than you're wanting to be filled. This is what he made you for. So we aren't going to beg. We're just going to open up the doors of these temples and welcome him. And the moment you crack the door just a little bit, the Holy Ghost is coming in. Amen. He's going to come flowing into your life. So we're just going to give him that freedom. He's a gentleman. You have to invite him. He won't force this upon you. But if you will open up your heart and say, Holy Spirit, I want your power in my life. And I want this gift of speaking in tongues. When you open up, he's going to fill you. And then I'd like to ask our prayer ministers to come up here. We've got people who've already been filled with the Holy Spirit. And they're going to come stand behind you. And they're going to lay hands on you. And the Bible says that through the laying on of hands, the Holy Spirit was released into people's lives. So we're going to lead you in this prayer. And then after I lead you in prayer, they are going to lay hands on you and release this power of the Holy Spirit to come into your life. And then we are going to start praying in tongues because the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 17, that when you pray in tongues, you're giving thanks. You're praising God. So we're going to start thanking God in this gift of speaking in tongues. And when we start speaking in tongues, I want you to join in with us and quit thanking Him in English, but go to thanking Him in tongues and just giving Him praise for filling you with the Holy Spirit. Don't go by what you feel like. Sometimes people have these awesome experiences. Uh, but when I received the Holy Spirit, I just did it by faith. I didn't feel a thing. I just believed that I received and praise God. I've started walking in it and I've seen the power of God. So it doesn't matter whether you feel anything or not. It says in Luke eleven thirteen, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? He promised that he would do it. So we're going to just ask 
they're going to lay hands on you. And after they lay hands on you, I want you to lift your hands and start thanking God that he gave you the Holy Spirit, regardless of what you feel like. And then we're going to start praying in tongues and I want you to join in with us. Amen. Can you do that? Can you? That was a question. Amen. You know, the Bible says that believers will speak with new tongues. Mark 16, 17, and 18. I want you to say, I'm a believer and I will speak in tongues. Father, I thank you for all of these. I thank you especially for these three that prayed to make Jesus their Lord. And we believe that we are born again, that on the inside, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are your dwelling place. So right now we open up our hearts and Holy Spirit, we welcome you to come into our lives, to fill us right now with your power. Fill us, Father, with your love. It says that the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. We open up our heart and we welcome your power and your love and this gift of speaking in tongues. Come Holy Spirit, we give you freedom now in Jesus' name. We lay hands on you in the name of Jesus and we just say receive the Holy Spirit. We loose this power to come into your life right now. From head to toe, Holy Spirit, just come and indwell and burn up all of the junk that's in us and help us to live for you and to follow you. We welcome your presence. Now, I want you to lift your hands and go to thanking God that he did it. You know, when you lift your hands, the Bible says this blesses God. It's like when somebody sticks a gun in your back and you lift your hands. It's like, I surrender, I yield. Just put your hands up and go to thanking God out loud. Talk out loud. Thank you, Father, that I am filled with the Holy Spirit. Thank you that your word promises that you would give me the Holy Spirit. I believe I receive. Thank you that I am God-possessed. I am filled with the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for filling me. Praise Him right now. And those of you who know how to pray in tongues, let's start worshiping the Lord and speaking in tongues. And as we give thanks in this language that comes from the Holy Spirit, you quit speaking in English and start praying in tongues with us right now. Just switch over from English to saying words that you don't know what they are. If you don't know what to say, you can try and say what you hear the person behind you saying, but your tongue will be different than theirs. It'll be unique to you. But once you start speaking, and it comes out differently, just keep talking. Don't worry about what it sounds like. Just keep talking. Speak. Hallelujah. Just talk out loud right now. Speak in the name of Jesus. You know, when you first start talking as a baby, everybody who hears you says, that isn't mama or daddy. But boy, that parent knows what you're saying. Your Heavenly Father right now, even though this may sound strange to you and it may not sound like a real language, your Heavenly Father is listening to your heart. You're bypassing the doubt and the unbelief that's in your head. And you're praying out of your born-again spirit. And you're releasing power. You're praying a prayer that's not based on your unbelief or your questions. It's just pure Holy Spirit. Thank you, Jesus. Just be bold. You can't talk in tongues with your mouth closed. You got to open your mouth and talk. 
Thank you, Jesus. Man, God is hearing what you're saying. God is listening to your heart. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Boy, many, many of these are praying in tongues. I believe that this is going to transform your life. Thank you, Jesus. Don't worry about what it sounds like. I've actually heard a language that's nothing but clicks of the tongue. There's another language that's nothing but whistles. And the Wycliffe Bible translators have translated those whistles into a language. Just speak now in the name of Jesus. Thank you, Father, for filling all of these with your Holy Spirit. Hallelujah. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Jesus. And we've got a lot of these people praying in tongues down here. You know, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but if you could give me your attention here for just a moment. I want to say some things to you. This is really important what happened to you. It's more important than what any of you understand. I don't care if you if you felt something tremendous, if you felt nothing. The Holy Spirit has come into your life and you now have access to the power of God that you didn't have before. But you've got to understand it to get the full impact of this. And let me also say that even if you didn't pray in tongues, I believe God gave you the Holy Spirit because He promised that He would. I received the Holy Spirit three and a half years before I spoke in tongues. But that's because I was a Baptist. And I was told that this was of the devil and I just had so much messed up thinking about it that it hindered me. But you know what? I kept pursuing it. I finally learned some things. I've written it all in a book and this book will explain what true salvation is to those of you who prayed for salvation. It will uh, explain the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And you've got to understand this. This is more than just coming up front and saying a few words that you don't understand. You've got to understand what is what this is all about and why speaking in tongues is important. And I've written all of these things in a book and I'd like to give every one of you a free copy of this book and encourage you to read it because it'll answer your questions. And even if you didn't pray in tongues, you got that gift tonight. It was given to you. You just have to learn how to operate in it. And I've written all of this in a book and it'll help you to understand it. So if you would, I would like you to turn and just go with Robert right here. He's the man with his Bible up in the air. And we've got a room right over here full of these books. They want to give you a book and just make sure that everybody understands what's going on. So if you would, just follow Robert. It'll only take a minute or two. But we want to give every one of you a book. And I'd like to encourage you to read it and let the Holy Spirit make this a powerful experience in your life. Amen. Praise the Lord. Isn't this awesome? So I don't know exactly how many this is, but if we had 85 before that, you know, we're already over 120. That's how many got the baptism of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost at first. And man, today the whole world is hearing the gospel because of what happened. We've had that many receive in three services. Man, this could certainly change Atlanta. Amen. These are our prayer ministers here, and these are just awesome, awesome people. These are people that love God. They've been trained by Ashley and Carly and Robert how to minister to people, how to speak to the problem, and I want to offer them as opportunities for you to come and get prayer tonight. 
I'm going to lead us in prayer tonight and I'm going to be praying for people and there will be people called out and there will be healings take place. But you know, these people are here to help you. And I know that there's a lot of people that think I'm the only one that can pray for you, but it's not true. And I can't pray for every single person. I'm sorry. I wished I could. I love to do it, but um, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to go to bed tonight. Amen. And so if you want prayer, you're going to have to come and let one of these pray for you. If you would like prayer, I'd like to invite you to come right now and let someone lay hands on you. We've got people standing at the aisles and they're going to direct you towards a person so that everybody won't just go to one side. If you need prayer right now, I'd like to encourage you to come. The rest of you, I'm going to stay here and pray with you. And what typically happens is I have a gift of a word of wisdom and a word of knowledge. And I often call out all kinds of healings and people get healed right there. And so I'm going to be praying with people. You're welcome to stay and pray. But if you uh, desire to go, you can leave with all the rest of the people that have already gone. Amen. (laughs) But if you would like to stay and pray with us and receive, you're welcome to. Remember that we have CDs of the three services that we've already done, the CDs and DVDs are already duplicated out there. And I really encourage you to get them. This is stuff that you aren't going to hear often enough and you need to come here. So if you need prayer, just come forward right now and let one of our prayer ministers here agree with you and pray with you. Rest of you, if you need to go, you're welcome to go. Remember that tomorrow we are going to be starting at 10 o'clock in the morning and then we'll start at six o'clock tomorrow night. We set up, we start an hour earlier to give my crew the ability to take down all of our stuff and get to bed before two or three in the morning. So thanks for coming. God bless you. Amen. Father, we just pray now for all of these and thank you that by the stripes of Jesus, we have already been healed. Audrey, do you want to come up here and pray with people or do you need to leave? If you wouldn't mind, Audrey, she gave a testimony this morning and man, this woman operates in the miracle power of God. It's a strong woman of God. Come up here and pray with people. So Father, we believe in the name of Jesus that by your stripes, we've already been healed and we receive this healing right now. We receive your power for every sickness and every disease. Father, we thank you that our sins have been atoned for past, present, and future. And that there's nothing that would hold you back from healing us except us just not receiving. We open up our hearts and we receive from you tonight. We receive miracles. We receive your supernatural power. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. And there's a number of people here that have back pains. I know that there's all kinds of back pains, but this is specifically somebody, it's not like in your spine. It's not just one place that hurts. It's just a sore back up here in your shoulder blades and you just have soreness there. It's kind of related to curvature of the spine. God's healing that right now. Somebody that's had this curvature of the spine, this just pain in your in between your shoulder blades. Here's the healing power of God flowing towards you. If that's you right now, I want you to stand and raise your hand so I can see who that is. Here's one lady. Here's a man. Here's a man. Anybody else? Here's a number of people. 
Father, in the name of Jesus, I believe that that's a word from you. And right now we command this spirit of infirmity to leave these people. Get off of them, loose them, let them go now in the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. Right there's the anointing of God. There's your pain, gone. There's his pain, gone right now. This soreness is gone. Straighten yourself up and you're going to stay that way in the name of the Lord Jesus. Father, we release this power and I thank you that that spirit of infirmity is gone and that your healing has come into their lives right now and that this pain is over, over in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Were there any of you that were standing for that that your pain's already left you? Here's a lady right here. The pain's already gone. If, if that's you, I want you to wave at me. Here's, man, a bunch of people. Bunch of people right here. Here's one back there. Amen. Look at this. That's the majority of the people that were standing. And you know, even if you didn't see your pain leave instantly, Jesus cursed the fig tree and it was 24 hours later before they could see what had happened. Whether you saw it or felt it right now, I believe that God's healed you. But this ought to be an encouragement to you that at least half of these people have already seen their pain leave. I believe God's healed you too. Amen. You're healed. From this time on, you don't have that anymore. Father, we thank you and we receive that in the name of Jesus. There's people here that you can't lift your arms like this. You got pain right here in your shoulder. You've done something like a rotator cuff or something here and you got pain in your shoulder. If that's you, I want you to stand and raise your hand. If you can't raise your other hand, jump up and down or do something so I can tell you're one that I'm praying for, amen. Praise the Lord. Father, I pray for these right now and whatever's wrong with these shoulders, in the name of Jesus, shoulders be healed. We release your power, Jesus. Holy Spirit, touch everyone and release this power. Now, command these rotator cuffs to be healed. For pain to be gone off of these people now in the mighty name of Jesus. Pain you leave and the source of this pain. Leave these people right now in Jesus' name. Begin to move your arms around. You're going to be able to move in a way you weren't able to move before. Here's your pain gone. Your freedom of movement's coming back. All of this pain, leave right now. Be gone off of these people now in the mighty name of Jesus. Hallelujah. How many of you have already had your pain leave? Wave at me. Man, here's a bunch of people. Praise the Lord. Isn't that awesome? That's a miracle. Somebody think, well, I didn't see anything. You know what? If a doctor could just have somebody come in and lead them in a short prayer like that, they could be, make a lot of money off that. I tell you what, that's a miracle. People that have had pain in their shoulders to be pain-free, that's Jesus touching people and healing people right now. Somebody's esophagus. You got a herniated esophagus. God's healing. A herniated esophagus. If that's you, I want you to stand and I'm going to pray for you. Who's this that has a herniated esophagus? If that's you, I want you to stand and wave at me so I can see which one you are. I know you're here. Here's a couple of people over here. Who else? Right here. Amen. Oh, I prayed for you earlier and you're healed. Amen. He didn't know what it was, but I called that out that it, 
Father, right now, in the name of Jesus, we command this herniated esophagus to be healed right now. We command that thing to close up for any pain or discomfort to be gone. Father, I thank you that they're going to be able to eat anything that's good for them. They'll be able to eat it at any time of the day or night. Thank you that they are healed right now. I loose this healing power of God and command this esophagus to be healed in Jesus' name. Hallelujah. Man, that's awesome. You know, God's healing hearts right now. Any of you that have heart problems, I want you to stand and wave at me. God's healing hearts right now. If that's you, I want you to stand and raise your hand in the air so I'll see who I'm praying for. Father, for all of these right now, we command these hearts to be healed. Whatever's wrong with these hearts. Thank you, Jesus. Here's the power of God touching people's hearts right now. Somebody had a congenital heart failure. You've had a heart problem since the day you were born. Here is the Lord healing this heart. Right now it's gone. This heart problem that you were born with is gone. That's a word of knowledge just for you. God has healed this thing that you've had since you were a little child. Here's the healing power of God. Somebody's got a chamber of your heart that's not functioning right. Here's the healing power of God now. Command heart disease to be gone. Somebody here's got a heart that's uh, hardened. This isn't talking about your emotions. This is your physical pump. It's, you got a hard heart. It doesn't, it doesn't move properly. It's, it's become rigid. Here's the healing power of God. That's just a word of knowledge to quicken your faith. Here's the healing power of God flowing towards you and touching your heart giving you a brand new heart, soft and pliable. You're going to have more energy than you've had in years and years and years. This heart is healed now. We command all of these heart problems, heart valve problems to be healed now. Father, I release your anointing and I speak healing to these hearts now in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we agree and we receive it. Thank you, Father. Hallelujah. Praise God. I believe that God's healing you right now. Hallelujah. I don't know if you could feel the difference in your heart, but I believe God's healed many of you right now. And you'll see the difference over a period of time. Father, we just thank you for all of these healings. Thank you for touching people here. Somebody here has been unable to digest food properly and you have a lot of problems. You're intolerant of certain types of food and you have to be on a very restricted diet and your life is just held hostage by this. God's healing you of this right now. God's healing this digestive tract. You're going to be able to eat anything from now on. God's healing you right now. If that's you, if you've had this digestive Problems. I want you to stand and hold your hand up or wave at me so I can see who it is I'm praying for. Praise the Lord. Father, for all of these right now in the name of Jesus, whatever this problem is with their digestion, we just speak healing over them. Command these bodies to recover. Satan, you loose them and let them go. And Father, I speak your healing power to flow into their stomach, into their intestines. Believe that you are healing whatever's wrong. 
Somebody hears being healed of polyps in your intestines, little cancerous things in your intestine. Here's the healing power of God touching you and those things are healed right now in the name of Jesus. We command all of these problems to leave and be gone off of them now in Jesus' name. Praise the Lord. Oh, there's a lot of really good things happening. A lot of people being set free. Thank you, Father. Man, there's a lot of stuff happening in here. You know, I just, I, I want to do this. If you need a healing in your body, whether I've called it out or not, if, you, if you're ready to receive, I'd like you just to stand with me right now and I'm going to lead you in a prayer. And I believe God's going to just touch a lot of things, much more than what I could call out. You know, there's a scripture in Mark chapter two where it says the power of the Lord was present to heal. And I believe that tonight. I believe that the power of the Holy Spirit is here and it's present to heal. You're ready to be healed. And so I'm just gonna simply lead you in prayer and I want you to believe that God's touching you right now and that you're getting healed. And then I want you to begin to move and do what you didn't feel like doing or poke the place that hurt or bend or move or do something, but believe that God is healing you right now. Father, I pray for all of these who are standing and we thank you that you've already healed every sickness, every disease, that by your stripes we were healed. And that Father, there's nothing that you're not imputing our sins unto us. You're not holding them against us. Father, we not only believe you have the power to heal, but we believe that you want to heal, that you don't have anything against us, that you aren't holding back your power, that you want your people healed. And so right now we just stand and reach out and receive this healing. We receive our healing. Holy Spirit flow from one end of this auditorium to the other. Touch bodies and heal people. We believe that you've already put this power on the inside of us and we release it now. Command arms and legs, feet, ankles, knees to be healed, hips to be healed, all of the internal parts of our body. We command the effects of strokes to leave. Minds you be repaired and move and function. We command neuropathy to leave and be gone off of people. All of the sinus problems, migraine type problems, Father, we just speak against these things and command that stuff to leave us and to let us go now in the name of the Lord Jesus. Bodies, you be healed. Pain, you leave. Symptoms, you be gone. We break the curses that have been spoken over us on sickness and death. These terrible things that have been spoken and we believe the Lord's report that by the stripes of Jesus, we were healed. Father, we thank you for that. And we just praise you that your healing power is flowing in our bodies right now in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Y'all believe that? I want you to praise God like you believe that God has healed you. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for healing us tonight. Amen, amen, amen. Praise God. I tell you what, the Word of God will set you free. Amen.
I'm going to let you go. Remember tomorrow, 10 o'clock, 6 p.m. Remember the CDs and DVDs and all of the other good things. Also, ambassadors to the nations, Pastor Derry and Karen Jolly from uh, Charlotte. I know many of you would just love to be a part of that. Man, you could touch a, a child's life, change their life forever. So check on all of those things.